Hey everybody, start your day as I do with a Boyer's cup of coffee. Nothing better. In fact, I usually have two and then I have one uh, as a nightcap before I go to bed. I know that sounds crazy, but I have a little decaf uh, before I go to bed. Go to boyerscoffee.com. They have a huge selection of flavored gourmet coffees. They've been roasting coffee in the Rockies since 1965. It's simply outstanding. And for the holidays, you have to check out the website because they have all sorts of great promotions on there. And you'll probably find some gifts for the coffee lover in your life. If you have some time, head up to 73rd in Washington to the Boyer's Mobile Cafe. You can order your favorite drink and pastries and bag gourmet coffee there as well. And check this out. On Fridays, it's happy hour all day. Buy one, get one free drinks from open to close. And on Saturdays, you buy more, you save more on bag coffee at the Coffee Cottage. Your limit's up to six, but to buy any two, 10% off. Buy any three, 15% off. Buy any four or more, 20% off. It's a great deal. BoyersCoffee.com. If you have a project around the house and you don't have steel tools, you are missing out on the best power equipment out there. Steel, S-T-I-H-L, battery powered, made by steel. They also have electric and gas. They're the official handheld outdoor power equipment of the Colorado Rockies. And they have over 9,000 steel dealers nationwide. Again, it's steeldealers.com, whether it's blowers, chainsaws, hand saws, or trimmers for the backyard. They are in season 12 months a year. Steeldealers.com, S-T-I-H-L. Go see them. This week on the Drew Goodman Podcast, Drew breaks down the Major League Baseball winter meetings, the Broncos, what's going right, the great improvement from Garrett Bowles, and special guest Chad Brown talking quarterbacks, his time at CU, playing for Bill Cower and Bill Belichick. Bill is completely misunderstood by the public. He is a funny guy. It now seems to be a drier, more wittier, sarcastic humor, but he's a funny guy. He likes to laugh. And of course, reptiles. This is the Drew Goodman Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the Drew Goodman Podcast number 74. Got a great guest we're going to get to in a few minutes. Chad Brown, who had a marvelous career at the University of Colorado and went on to a 15-year career in the NFL that included several Pro Bowls. He's now gotten into broadcasting. He has eclectic interests. He's really a fascinating guy. We'll get to Chad uh, in a little bit. We're going to begin this broadcast, though, this uh, podcast, I should say, talking about Major League Baseball. The uh, meetings, the winter meetings are going on. They are more virtual this year, like everything else. And I have to tell you, I've gone the last few years and really enjoyed it. The first year I went, was uh, in Orlando, then the next year was in Las Vegas, last year was in San Diego. They, they pick uh, nice destinations. And really everybody in the game, from front office people to uh, you know broadcasters to writers, certainly, to uh, people who aspire to get in the business, to folks that are trying to uh, sell the latest equipment in baseball, they're all there. And it's a lot of fun. There's a lot of drinking that takes place, and there's a lot of stories that go around. But um, it, it is a great annual event. And also, typically, there are a number of deals that emanate from the winter meetings. This year, again, they're going on virtually, and, and some deals have gotten done as we tape this on a Wednesday night. Uh, one of the things that's changed, though, 
it, it used to happen, it seemed like, in a flurry during the winter meetings. It slowed down the last few years, and I think this year is going to be the same. And certainly, it has more to do with the fact that uh, we're going through this pandemic and probably less to do with the fact that not everybody's there in person. Because the, the folks that you don't see are the general managers, typically. They stay holed up in their suites, and they're doing a lot of business on the phone and texting back and forth. And then usually late in the day, they'll have some sort of press conference with their local media. You do see agents wandering around. Scott Boris, usually late in the week, hosts uh, you know a big mega kind of uh, press conference, and, and everybody wants to be around that. And, and Scott is very good at holding court. Um, and he normally has a lot of uh, the top free agents. But uh, there, there hasn't been a ton of news that have come out of uh, the winter meetings. I know Rockies fans are wondering, will Nolan Arenado get traded? Well, again, as a Wednesday night, hasn't happened. I uh, th- The same thing with Trevor Story. I was asked a question. I was doing a radio show in St. Louis actually earlier in the day, and I get this question a lot. And they said, do you think Nolan will get traded? And the way I answered it today I wanted to pass on to you on this podcast, and that is uh, a little more than a year ago, even though there were starting to be some rumblings and, and there was the situation where Nolan was felt like, you know, the Rockies weren't building a winner, I guess, in his mind fast enough, and there was uh, a disconnect between the front office and Nolan. And even at that point, I felt like this will get smoothed over. Those things have happened in the past with other athletes. Um, and I and I felt like there's no way he'll get traded. Well, now fast forward, you know, 13, 14 months later. And if he were to get traded, as I said on the radio show uh, in St. Louis today, it wouldn't shock me. Whereas a little more than a year ago, it would have. And I think that's just where, not so much where the Rockies are with Nolan. I think it speaks more to where baseball is having lost so much money with the the shortened season and the inability to have fans last year. Um, and, and I think that is without question affecting every team in baseball. Um, there are a couple of teams out there, at least that have been aggressive so far. They're trying to maybe take advantage of the market. Kansas City at the mid-level uh, have, have signed a couple of players. Carlos Santana, who was very good in 2019 in the abbreviated season last year. His numbers were down. He hit a little under 200, but he's a power bat. They need a power bat in their lineup. Um, you've seen the Chicago White Sox. I think they're they're kind of pushing all their chips to the middle of the table. I think they feel like they can contend uh, to be the last one standing um, next year. But other than that, I think teams and even teams with a lot of money typically are being very cautious because they lost a great deal of money. And there's uncertainty uh, as to how much money, how much revenue they can bring in 2021 as we get the vaccine out there. But they're, they're not going to have full stadiums initially. And you wonder if at all in 2021 where there'll be a, a situation where they'll be able to have full stadiums. So that has to weigh heavily on the minds of of ownership and and thusly general managers. Another baseball item that I wanted to make mention of that I've been thinking about, now it's starting to be written about, even with the vaccine and vaccines being out there, I'm not sure this season is going to start on time. And I would think it gets pushed at least 30 days into May, again, to get the 
vaccine out there more and hopefully have the ability to you know produce 15 or 20,000 people in a stadium somewhere where these owners are recouping dollars and then the question has to be asked do you play 162 or are they going to ask the, the players for you know a few bucks back and play 140 games something like that well we all know how that went last year when the owners asked for for money back um, from the players if it were me, sure, push it to May 1st, perhaps, but play 162, even if you play well into November, and maybe for another year you play at a warm, neutral site. But it is certainly a story that um, is one that we're going to have to closely follow because once we get into January, uh, it, it's going to be brought up more frequently um, and will have to be addressed. I'm, obviously, they're talking about it internally at Major League Baseball, but uh, we'll see where that goes uh, in the winter, but that is something that certainly is going to happen or potentially is going to happen. We segue to football. It's that time of year. A couple of quick notes on the Broncos. Uh, they were very competitive against the Kansas City Chiefs, not into moral victories. Uh, they ended up losing the better team one. Saw a strange uh, thing in that uh, game when Tyreek Hill uh, caught a touchdown pass and didn't realize he caught a touchdown pass, nor did Andy Reid, and therefore uh, they went and punted the football in the next play, and they lost out on a touchdown. From the Chiefs' perspective, they didn't need it at the end. I was thinking about, uh, as I watched that game, all right, what's gone well for the Broncos this year? And and there were two items, I'm, I'm not going to elaborate on them, but two things that have come out of this season so far that I think are a positive. Number one, the great improvement from Garrett Bowles. You have to have a left tackle in the NFL. And the Broncos a year ago at this time weren't so sure they had a left tackle. And he has played so well and made such great strides under Mike Munchak this year that the Broncos signed him to a very lucrative long-term deal and they feel comfortable now and feel like they're in a good place amazingly based on what he had done the first few years at left tackle. So good for Garrett Bowles and good for the Broncos. That's one last thing they have to worry about in the offseason. The other thing is, I know the jury is still out on Drew Locke, but Drew Locke is getting reps. He's healthy again. He's getting an opportunity to grow. And he'll have another handful of games to continue that growth this year. That is a positive. And you've heard me before on this podcast pontificate about you can't jump ship on a quarterback, and we're we're too quick to do that. So let it play out with Drew Locke. They're going to get a better feel for where he is. Those are the first two positives I think of, and, and there are others with the Broncos, but the, the two at the top of the list as I was uh, unpacking that uh, game the other night against the Chiefs, those are the two things that came to mind. All right, I want to talk about uh, the University of Colorado since we have Chad Brown on, and they're getting ready for Utah this weekend. The ball game is now on Saturday. It's going to be a, a 10 a.m. kickoff nationally on uh, FS1, I believe, or on Fox, uh, one of their their two channels. But um, they came from behind, and they, they beat Arizona. Jarek Broussard rushed for over 300 yards. What a sophomore year he's having. It's reminiscent of the year that Rashawn Salamha had, the late Rashawn Salam, when he won the Heisman Trophy. He's on the same pace through four games. Now, Jarek Broussard, no matter what he does, is probably not going to win the Heisman Trophy because Colorado's not going to play enough uh, football games that will allow him to. But good for the Buffs, off to that uh, 4-0 start. 
Good for Jared Broussard. It's been a blast to watch. And uh, hopefully Colorado can keep this thing rolling. It takes us also to our question of the week. And this question of the week comes from Phil. Drew, what are some of your favorite Buffs memories through the years? Favorite Buffs memories? I have a lot, Phil. And I'm going to bounce through several. And I probably won't get to all of them, but I've been watching the Buffs play up in Boulder since 1986. So I've seen uh, a lot of good memories. There have been a lot of great memories there, um, and, and certainly so many surround when the Buffs won the national championship. So I'm going to begin there. In 1990, uh, this, this game actually was up in Lincoln in that rainstorm, and the, the Buffs are taking on hated Nebraska, and they were down until Eric Bieniemy somehow ran for four touchdowns in that fourth quarter. And the Buffs won 27-12, and uh, onward they moved to the Orange Bowl, which will take me to another game I got to witness, and that was uh, at the Orange Bowl. And the whole game, they're kicking away from Rocket Ismail, and then they kicked a Rocket. He returns it for a touchdown, but thank goodness there was a yellow hanky on the field clipping erased that uh, that great punt return. We're going to talk to Chad Brown about that uh, in a little bit as well. I got another uh, memory, and this was one where the Buffs hung on. Do you guys remember Jerry Godowski? He was a backup until his senior year. He's out of Fremont, Nebraska. Really good athlete, really accurate passer. Finally gets his opportunity as a senior. And he went on to be the co-Big 8 player of the year in the conference with Darian Hagan. Well, Nebraska came into uh, into uh, Folsom Field and gave the Buffs all they wanted. It came down to the last play of the game. I think Gadowski, by the way, threw a touchdown pass on the first play of the game. Came down to the last play of the game. He threw a ball in the end zone, and it, w- it wasn't a Hail Mary. I mean, he he dropped back from like the plus 25-yard line and, and fired a ball into the end zone, and everybody... You know, 50-plus thousand are holding their breath, and fortunately it was incomplete, and Colorado uh, ended up prevailing. But uh, that was uh, 27-21 final. So had had that pass been complete, an extra point would have won it for Nebraska. Who could forget that game in 01 where Nebraska came in the top five in the country and Colorado absolutely pasted them? 62-36, Chris Brown ran wild. You know another running back who went over 100 yards in that game that – you know, I think it's overlooked because Chris Brown was the dominant force that day. Bobby Purify, I think he went for about a buck forty-five uh, in that game. And some in Lincoln believe that was the beginning of the demise because, as hard as this is to imagine, it's almost two decades later. Nebraska has not won a conference title since then. Couple other memories from uh, Colorado. Great question, Phil. I'm ready to go on and on and go all day. I remember when Miami came to town. It was the it was the biggest game in college football that day. It was 1993. Miami. You know they show up in their fatigues and everything. They're loaded. It was during their heyday. Colorado still was rolling, and Miami unfortunately ended up winning that football game. But it was the setting for one of the biggest brawls I've ever seen on a football field. And for the longtime Buffs fans, you all remember that. 
That goes back to 1993. I mean, that was scary. The guys were swinging their helmets, and uh, it, was, it was really an ugly incident, but it was uh, one of my memories. And I guess I'll leave you with this one. It's not a. It's not really a, a fond buffs memory. It's a memory of one of the great characters in college football that uh, I got to see up close, and that was Brian Bosworth when they came in with the Oklahoma Sooners, and they, they beat the buffs pretty good that day. I think it was 1987. Uh, maybe been 86, can't recall. And they, they come into Folsom Field, and I was there early, and I'm watching the linebackers for Oklahoma go through their drills, and I was watching Brian Bosworth's footwork, and you thought you were watching like a cornerback. I mean, he had the fastest feet and electric feet, and he was so balanced in everything he did, yet he was like 250 pounds. Well, he was so dominant. I remember the Colorado ran a toss sweep at one point, uh, early in the game, and Bosworth, like he was shot out of a cannon, got to the edge and and threw the running back for like a five-yard loss. He was by far the best player on the field playing you know, inside linebacker. And I, I know in the NFL he had shoulder issues and, and other issues, and, and it never really panned out anywhere close to the level he was in college. But he is one of the greatest defensive players I've ever seen in college football. You know, two-time, basically unanimous All-American at Oklahoma, the Boz, who also famously made money on Denver Bronco fans when he came to town. The Boz Buster shirts they were selling outside the stadium. It was his company that manufactured it. He was a pretty smart guy, too. He was a real good student in the classroom. All right, those are uh, many of my memories, not all of them, from uh, Colorado through the years on the gridiron. Phil, thanks for that question. Appreciate it. Uh, let's get you to our interview of the week that's always presented by Ideal Home Loans. The former great buff linebacker, speaking of linebackers, and now a terrific broadcaster, Chad Brown. Well, it's been a while, Chad, uh, that we've had an opportunity to get together, but I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, to sitting down and conversing a little bit, at least uh, virtually, right? Yeah, it should be a, a good time. You know, I've known you for a, a long time, and it's, to your point, it's been a long time since we chatted, so... Uh... Why not catch up and let other people listen in? <laughs> you know the, you know what? The scary part about this, you don't realize this, but if you think about it, you will. Um, I first met you when you were a teenager, and now you're in the 50-plus crowd, dude. Uh, I'm not sure if that says more about me or more about you. <laughs> we're, we, you know what? You're right. We're, we're survivors. I'm going uh, to throw us in that category, so that's a pretty good thing. Hey, hey, listen, you just, uh, you know, you're, you're doing so many things in, in the broadcast world and in, and in private business. But uh, over the weekend, as we taped this on a Tuesday, you had the Packers and, and Philadelphia. Philadelphia uh, seems to be in flux at quarterback. We'll leave that aside for the moment. But what a joy it is to watch Aaron Rodgers play. And just last week on the podcast, I was talking about Mahomes and Rodgers. And if they're on... I'm in. I don't care if they're playing, you know, 11 guys off the street. It's just it, they're a joy to watch, aren't they? I think if you're a football fan, you have to recognize, you know, that what we're seeing from these two guys uh, is the top level of the game. And in some ways, it breaks. They're so good, they break the rules of quarterbacking. You know, here in, in Denver, where both you and I are, we spend so much time talking about Drew Locke, the Broncos' young quarterback. And we talk about he's got to get better with his footwork. And he's got to do this and he's got to do that. 
Meanwhile, you can't tell a young quarterback, watch the tape of Patrick Mahomes or watch the tape of Aaron Rodgers and learn what to do because they do things that break all the rules. They don't throw from a stable quarterback platform. Footwork isn't as much of an issue for them because they've got such amazing arm talent. Uh, during uh, the – well, actually, before my broadcast, Aaron Rodgers was out on one side of the field warming up, and Carson Wentz was on the other side of the field warming up. And just to see the clear, apparent, obvious difference in arm talent just in the warm-up process, it was amazing to watch. I think whoever was catching passes for Aaron Rodgers did not even have to extend his arms past his body. Versus the guy who was catching passes for Carson Wentz, he had to run to catch up to some passes, slow down to catch up to some passes, turn around to catch some passes. And this was just in the warm-up process, much less seeing the dazzling play of Aaron Rodgers during the actual game. And you mentioned Patrick Mahomes. I had him a couple weeks ago against Tom Brady. And, and even in that situation, Tom Brady may be the greatest quarterback of all time, and obviously Father Time is catching up with him. But Patrick Mahomes does things that Tom Brady could only wish and dream about from a physical arm talent perspective. It is literally a treat to watch those two guys, Pat Mahomes and Aaron Rodgers, play the quarterback position. Yeah, I couldn't concur more. We've seen an evolution in the quarterback spot in that we we have more move quarterbacks. But, you know, whenever we start dissecting before the draft and we'll do it, you know, and you'll do it a lot more than I'll have to do it. But, you know, with Trevor Lawrence coming up and and Justin Fields and, and the next class of quarterbacks that are going to embark on the NFL. To me, you can talk all you want about athletic ability and arm talent and they can throw the entire route tree, all, all the all those things that we say and you as an expert say leading up to a draft. You know what it comes down to, and and you know this to be true. You were a great player in college. Obviously, you had an unbelievable NFL career. Open in the NFL is completely different than open in college. Therefore, your accuracy for me is the most important element in evaluating a quarterback and as to what he can do at the next level. Would you would you agree with that? I, I would agree with that. Now, there's always going to be outliers outside of that. Last night. Josh Allen and the Buffalo Bills played. And coming out of Wyoming, Josh Allen was a 55% passer. Um, now, he lost most of his receiving core before his senior year, so he was dealing with a bunch of guys he wasn't familiar with. But 55% does not say you deserve to be a first-round quarterback. So it is a rare circumstance where a guy can have that kind of lack of accuracy on the college level and then become a 70% passer like Josh Allen has been able to do this year. But to your point, Drew, absolutely. The NFL game, the defenses are so good, the defensive backs are so good, your accuracy becomes critically important. There's a couple different components to accuracy. Obviously, it's where you place the ball, but it's the timing as well. This window where you can deliver an accurate ball is also very small. If you give a defensive back too much time, even if you deliver a ball accurately, he's going to have a chance to break on that ball, get a hand in there, and break that pass up. So there's a timing component to it. There's an actual ball placement component to it. And then there's also an understanding of the defense and where my receiver is going to be. So these young quarterbacks making that transition, when we as pundits talk about accuracy, those are the things we're, we're talking about. Their ability to deliver a well-placed ball 
time and away from the defense, you need to know all those things in order to be an accurate, quote-unquote, quarterback. Yeah, that's well put. All right, since I mentioned it, uh, I, I first met you when you were a teenager. I want to go way back. You grew up in the Pasadena area, and you decide on the University of Colorado, which back then, I mean, they were a perennial top five, uh, at the very least, top pro- 10 program. But why, why Colorado as opposed to, and I don't, I don't know what your list was, but I'm guessing Southern Cal and UCLA. Uh, take us through that time frame in, in your life. Well, you know, I grew up in Southern California, as you mentioned, so naturally I'm a UCLA and USC fan. And, in fact, uh, my high school girlfriend's house was just a block away from where the Bruins stayed before they played at the Rose Bowl um, back in the day. So I would see Terry Donahue going on his pregame jog on Saturday mornings and actually bump into him purposely on a few times just to have those kind of conversations with him. Um, so I have certainly had ties to that program. And then the local cable access channel uh, in Pasadena would show my high school games, um, and, you know, they would have the sideline reporter do an interview. And the first thing I would do was put on a USC hat to, to do my interviews. I wanted to be a USC Trojan. Two guys from my high school went there the year before, Ricky Irvins, who ended up being a Rose Bowl MVP a couple of years later, played in the NFL. And then our quarterback, Vince Phillips, from my high school, John Muir High School, he ended up uh, going to the Yankees organization to be a pitcher. So he didn't uh, actually play football at USC, but both those guys signed letters of intent there. So, yeah, I was completely committed to, you know, at least in my mind, to one of those two schools. But my dad started talking to me about leaving the state of Colorado, I mean, leaving the state of California, and, you know, going out on my own and growing up a bit. And he kind of planted that seed in my mind early on in the recruiting process. Uh, so uh, fast forward to pretty late in the recruiting process, and we are having a family meal, and the phone rings during dinner. My dad gets up, answers the phone, and says, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, like I said, Chad's leaving the state and hangs the phone up. <laughs> I say, Dad, who was that on the phone? Well, that was USC. And I thought, well, I guess that's out. Um, that ends that. that is, now, now, at the same time, while Colorado was fighting against this, you know, Southern California bias I had in my head, I also recognized what they were putting together at Colorado. You know, George Hemingway was the number one running back in California two years before, you know, I, I was graduating. They got him, and then they got J.J. Flanagan, and then they got Eric Bieniemy the year before, another great running back. So they were getting these players out of California who I was familiar with, who, you know, maybe I saw playing an all-star game or something like that. So I'm like, wow, they're really doing something special at Colorado. Then, during my senior year, I know they're talking to Darian Hagan, who is not just the number one running back. He is literally the number one athlete and recruit in the state of California. I'm like, wow, they are really making some, you know, some big moves at Colorado. Um, I end up taking a recruiting trip there, love the city of Boulder. Uh, Coach McCartney, as anyone who's familiar with Coach McCartney uh, can, can expect me to say this next couple lines here, he came into my parents' house and blew the, whole, the roof off the house 
with his recruiting pitch and, you know, said some things to me that spoke to me as a player, said some things to my mother that spoke to her, you know, from a maternal standpoint, and then also told my father, you know what, I see that Chad has an excellent father in you, but I'm going to be his dad on campus. And I think that was the kind of thing that my parents needed to hear. Um, and so I decided that I would pass on some of these other opportunities at schools that maybe were a bit further ahead as far as a program because I wanted to be a part of building something special. Yeah, I could have gone to USC and been another All-American Trojan. They got like 155 of them. But to go to Colorado and be a part of building something special, bringing a national championship there, you know, becoming an All-American there, in my mind, was a much more satisfying way to go about things. And in the end, um, I live here in the state of Colorado. I got a job in my chosen profession, playing professional football. I won four Big A titles. I won a national championship. Uh, I met my wife at the University of Colorado. Both my kids are Colorado Buffaloes, either have graduated or will soon graduate. So I'm not sure what else you could want from a college experience than what I got from being a Colorado Buffalo. Yeah, you, you're you're not only you see you through and through. You're you're Colorado now, uh, through and through. Hey, Chad, and, and you played for. And I want to get into this in a little bit. Some some legendary figures, um, especially in the NFL. And Bill McCartney is a legendary figure. Not only here, he's a legendary figure. I think in, in Michigan, but for people who've followed college football over the last forty years, without question. He is a name that has to be discussed. Is he the greatest motivator that you've been around? Oh, wow. You know, I've, like you said, I was lucky to play for some really great coaches in the NFL. Uh, but I don't think anyone could quite build a narrative as well as Coach McCartney could. So I think people think of motivation and they, you know, picture some fiery pregame speech. You know, Coach Mack started building that emotion on Monday or in some cases Sunday when we had our first team meeting after the last game. And he would build that emotion and he would build that belief in us all throughout the week. So, uh, yeah, I don't think I've ever had someone as well-skilled as he was, as he was, as putting all the components of motivation together, whether it's challenging you as a competitor, whether it's you know, building up the opponent when they need to be built up, whether it's building his own team up, whether it's just challenging you and, 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 and bringing out the inter-emotion within you and unleashing your passion on game day, he was excellent at all those aspects. Were, were you shrewd enough at the time to look around at the Alfred Williams and the Canavis McGee's and the, you know, all, all this wonderful talent, some of the guys you had already mentioned who were recruited out of the state of uh, of California, did you realize not only yet yeah, they were really good, but they were almost as good potentially as anybody in the country? And it wasn't just, hey, you got a couple of really good ones. I mean, everywhere you looked, and sometimes it was too deep with guys that would play in the NFL. Yeah, when I tell people, you know, that Orange Bowl team, the defense that was on the field, every all 11 starters on that defense spent time somewhere in the NFL, all 11 starters on that defense. Um, now, of course, I was only a sophomore then, so I didn't know how this all would play out, but I fully recognized coming from the state of California where the competition level was incredibly high, 
that when I showed up to see you and saw the kind of athletes we had, that we were dealing with some very, very good players. And then we had the draft two years before I graduated where Alfred and Michael Pritchard go in the first round, Canavis McGee goes in the second round, and on and on and on. So it just kind of affirmed my feelings of how good we were, not because we won games on the field, but just from a pure talent and player perspective, we had one of the top programs and, in some cases, the top players in the country at certain positions. Hey, Chad, what what were your recollections of the fifth down? Did you realize what was unfolding in real time? Uh, I did in real time. I certainly wasn't going to run and tell the referees or any of the coaching staff. But, yeah, me and my uh, roommate, uh, Julian Hayward, were discussing on the sideline about, isn't it fifth down? It's got to be fifth down. So we were a little bit confused with, you know, obviously the down markers and then the scoreboard and what it showed. But, yeah, we were clearly discussing that something was off there. But to uh, Charles Johnson's point and Coach McCartney's point and everyone else's point, this out, there's no way we would have spiked the ball on fourth down if we knew it was really fourth down. We just would have ran the play that we ran and ended up scoring anyway. So, uh, in some ways, uh, I, I understand people's, you know, feelings about that game. But my answer has always been karma comes and gets you every time. For Missouri to have that particular style of turf, which the manufacturer's instructions said that had to be hosed down to be a playable surface, for them not to hose that down and allow all that sand to come up. I think our coaches reported 75 unforced slip and falls by us offensively and defensively during the course of that ball game. Colorado has just had a double of a time trying to stand up today. Missouri slipped some too. This turf is an embarrassment. Missouri tried to get a fast one over and screw up the turf so we didn't have very good footing. And in the end, karma got them. We got the fifth down, and we still got the victory. Johnson himself, is he in? Yes. Oh, oh my goodness. The ball game. Look out. They're all over the field. The fans are streaming onto the field as if Missouri won. Oh, my goodness. And yet on the other sideline, <laughs> the CU Buff team is running onto the field as if they won. CU wins the game, 33-31. Hey, I, I have, I've never asked you this. Were you on punt coverage uh, in, in the Orange Bowl? Yes, I was. All right, take, take, take us through that famous play. Well, uh, you know, there's, I think there's a bit of blame to go around everywhere there. Um, no, number one, listen, I'll remove you from it. I'll say it because I was saying it as I'm watching it from the press box. Mac didn't punt to Rocket the entire game. Why punt to him there? I said it. You didn't have to. Okay. Okay. Right. So, so there's that. But we, uh, you know, had the ball in a position where we would probably either kick the ball in the end zone or try to kick it out of bounds and field position wouldn't have been an issue because on second down we were in pretty good field position offensively. But then we got sacked on second down. And then we got sacked again on third down. So we lost about 20-plus yards due to those back-to-back sacks. And I'm not sure where the disconnect happened between, you know, what the plan was and then us actually kicking the ball to him. Now, Tom Ruins ends up being an All-American punter and plays in the National Football League for 15-plus years with my teammate with the Seattle Seahawks. I'm pretty sure he was supposed to angle that ball to the sideline. So we got a, a bit of a coaching error. We got an actual kicking error. And then – I am playing right guard, 
I quickly shed my guy at the line of scrimmage. I'm one of the first guys down the field. I actually hit the rocket on that return, if you watch that clip. And uh, I ended up having shoulder surgery two days after that game. My left shoulder wasn't working so well. So I hit him with my left shoulder pad. And as I'm trying to wrap my left arm around his legs to bring him down, my left arm wasn't working quite right. He hops out of my grasp, and the rest is history. He takes off like a flash, outruns our punt coverage unit. But luckily for us, there was that clip on Tim James. Was that was that karma also? Uh, no, I don't think there was karma. You know, we certainly didn't like Lou Holtz and some of the things he said before about our motivation and, you know, our, you know, quarterback foul and nephew passed away due to cancer during that season before. Um, but, I, you know, I won't put that one on karma. That was just the right call. <laughs> yeah, I do want to take you back. You mentioned Sal. And I, I remember being – Watching the Buffs on the road, I was I was with the team in Iowa City. It was it was kind of a landmark game because Colorado wasn't yet a a national power, and and Sal and Nessie led them. You you were probably still in Pasadena, John Muir. Um, he led them to a victory in Iowa City, and it, it was almost as if that was part of the arrival of the Buffs. Um, I don't know if you recall that or what you recall uh, of Salinesi and then the impact it had on the football team and the football program. Well, uh, I was at that game. Coach McCartney would typically take uh, one or two redshirt freshmen on some of the bigger road trips. Oh, okay. So you, you were already on campus. I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah, I was on campus. I was redshirting that year. But Coach Max came to me uh, at Thursday's practice and said, you're going to be playing in a lot of big games for us as a Colorado Buffalo. I want you to come to this weekend's game so you can get a sense of what it's like, what that's going to be like for us as a program and for you as a player. So uh, it was a very intense game for us. I'm not sure if, if Iowa took us quite as seriously as they should have, but I know the preparation – the guys had for that week and how intensive a locker room it was before that game. And then to your point, Sal ends up kind of winning the game for us there late with some uh, really good quarterback play. Um, so, yeah, we were building something special with Sal, and then due to Sal's, you know, illness and eventual death, you know, Gary Hagan takes over at the quarterback position. Well, I don't think as an 18-year-old, you know, kid, do you, if you have enough life experience to – to see what it see what it looks like when you literally see somebody from cancer wasting away who's your own age, and how that's going to impact you emotionally. Um, so to go through that as a football team and to share that experience, although incredibly negative, to turn that into a positive and use that as motivation, um, that was a, a, an amazing something, an amazing time to, to 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 be there and to experience all of that. Um, it helped grow us up as individuals. And I think it helped toughen us and mature us as a, as a team. Um, and, you know, the college football experience is not just all that happens on the field. I think so much of it is all these life lessons that you learn. And we clearly all learned a life lesson there as well. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Chad, things change and, and college football has changed. I, I, I say this, and it's pretty obvious, 
that there's really at the start of each college football season in this particular era, there's really only four or five teams that can legitimately win a national title. We know who the schools are. It's Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson. You know, obviously LSU's down this year, great year last year. Notre Dame's kind of, you know, entered that picture perhaps. Can Colorado get back to that level? Yes, I, I think they can. Um, but, you know, obviously there's, there's lots and lots of pieces to the puzzle to, to, to get there. Um, in some cases, some of those pieces are in place. You know, Colorado recently updated their facilities. And, you know, it's amazing what it takes to recruit high school football players now. You need to wear the correct brand of shoe. You need to win the facilities war. You need to, you know, give these kids some kind of uh, promises or illusions of playing time, all those kinds of things. Um, but, yeah, so Colorado has great facilities. Uh, they're, you know, they wear Nike. So that's a you know great brand and well known amongst the kids. Um, it's an incredible campus. There is a bit of a tradition there, although you know, we were a little bit removed from it currently, that recruiters can, can and coaches can tie back into. So the, some of the pieces are in place, but at some point you, you've got to start winning some games to make it a viable thing, and then you need a couple of key recruits to, where it all lines up into place to get that ball rolling. Again, I told about my story to see George Hemingway and JJ Flanagan and Eric Bieniemy become Colorado Buffaloes. That was enough for me to recognize they were going to be building something special. So, if the Buffs in the next four or five years are able to do something like that in California, maybe the state of Texas, uh, maybe bring a couple of guys out of Florida as they did during my heyday, those are the kind of pieces to the puzzle that allow you to be a top five, top ten type of program. Chad, who is the best player in college you played with that never made it at the next level for whatever reason? Mm, wow. Um, let me think about that. That's a pretty that's a pretty good question there. Um, you know, obviously so many of my teammates played in the NFL as Colorado Buffaloes. So you know, that would rule most of those guys out. Um, Nebraska and Oklahoma were clearly stacked. Uh, okay, I'll go with a guy from, you know, the, the hated Cornhuskers, Tommy Frazier. He ended up going to Canada versus the NFL because that style of quarterback play was just simply not part of the NFL back then. Yeah. But what he was able to do as a college player, and now what we see that style of quarterback do in the NFL – uh, I believe he would play at a very high level in today's NFL and probably be a first-round draft pick. You, you know, it's funny. I, you know, such great rivalry that, that really Matt created because Nebraska could care two, you know, bleeps, you know, about Colorado back then. And then all of a sudden Colorado, uh, through all of your guys' exploits, gets on the map. And now it's a, now it's a, a it can't be missed football game. But when Tommy Frazier was taking on Florida, Nebraska was playing Florida, and, and the most of the country is like, well, Nebraska's one-dimensional. This is Florida, and sexier team. And I was, I, I've never rooted harder for, for a team to kick ass than I, than I rooted for Nebraska. And they could have scored 80, if you remember, on Florida had they wanted to. That, that was fun to watch. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, yeah, to your point, People think about Nebraska in that run game and, and, and with those components they had, but they certainly had some very good tight ends at the time where they were, weren't were afraid to use in the passing game. And they typically had 
one receiving threat who if you committed too many guys to the box who could burn you deep, Tommy Frazier certainly could deliver balls to those passing weapons. We'll take a brief time out and continue our conversation with Chad Brown. But first, this from one of our great sponsors, Ideal Home Loans. They've been with us from day one. and I've been involved with Brent Ivinson's team for a long, long time. I've done a couple of loans with Brent. I have sent a number of people to Ideal Home Loans, and they all come back more than satisfied. They're thrilled with the service they get, with how quickly and efficiently their questions get answered, and they save lots of money. You can do the same thing. Give them a call at 303-867-7000. 303-867-7000. It's Ideal Home Loans. 303-867-7000. And now back to our interview with Chad Brown. So you go to the NFL. You have a great career in the NFL. Three Pro Bowls. You play for a, a number of teams. And you play for, for me, two of the great coaches of all time. One is unquestioned and the other a shorter run, but but still such great success. Bill Cower with Pittsburgh and, of course, Belichick. You played for Belichick a couple of times in New England. Uh, ha- when people ask you invariably, and I've talked to you about this in the past, when people mention those two guys, what do you say about them? And how misunderstood, I guess is a long-winded question, how misunderstood is Bill Belichick for the general public? Okay, I'll go with that first question first. Um, you know, playing for both of them was fantastic. And it demonstrates that there are lots of ways to win football games and win a Super Bowl. There's lots of ways to get that done. Because their programs, while successful, in some ways were, were really different. And obviously some of the basics are the same. Be on time, pay attention to the details, maximize your talent, all those kinds of things. But in the end, Bill Cowell, he his plan is I want to overwhelm our opponents with how hard we play football. That's what we're going to do, particularly defensively. We're going to be young. We're going to be aggressive. We're going to blitz you. We're going to dictate to you. And at some point, you're going to shy away from just how hard we're playing. And so I I learned that style pretty early on in my rookie year, and that was really how I tried to play the rest of my career. I just want to overwhelm you with how hard I go out and play this game. Um, Versus Bill Belichick, who – when I first got there, I was in year 13. He was telling me, hey, Chad, you got to slow down a bit. I'm like, slow down? This is my game. This is what I do. And when he's saying slow down, he doesn't mean necessarily play the game slower. Your decision-making process should be a little bit slower. I don't want you to make the athletic play. I want you to make the right play. So for all 11 players on the field, in each given situation, Bill is going to coach you, him and his coaching staff, on what the right play is for every situation. So that's why, that's why a guy like Teddy Bruschi, for example, you know, not a tremendous athlete, you know, only made one Pro Bowl his entire career. But when you think about Teddy Bruschi and all the impact plays he made for the New England Patriots, it's because he understood exactly what Bill was teaching. There's a right play to make in this situation. Teddy could go out there and execute that. So that's why the Patriots have been able to get by, in some cases, without the same type of athletes or pure players that other teams have had because their coaching philosophy is teaching everybody how to do that and execute the right play versus making the athletic play. 
And to your second question there, sorry, gentlemen, to cut you off. No, no, go for it. Bill is completely misunderstood by the public. He is a funny guy. It now tends to be a drier, more witty or sarcastic humor, but he's a funny guy. He likes to laugh. The rookie show is actually very important to Bill, and he would make those rookies actually come in at like sometimes 4 and 5 in the morning to work on their rookie show skits because he knew as serious as football is, there needed to be some levity. There needed to be some lightness to it. So he made sure those guys would put on a good rookie show for us. And then my last season in New England, where we were undefeated until we lost in the Super Bowl to the Giants, on one Saturday night late in the season, he could feel that the pressure was ratcheting up on us as a team trying to go undefeated. So we thought rather than having another team meeting, talking about what we're going to do and what our opponent's going to do, he brought in a comedian. And that comedian made us laugh for an hour. And that was a team meeting. It was fantastic. It was just what we needed. And that was the perfect time to pull that kind of move as a coach. We went out and kicked somebody's butt the next day. But he sensed that's what the team needed and gave us exactly what we needed. Uh, I probably told you this before, but being a native New Yorker and a lifelong uh, New York Giants fan, it's really like the last team doing what I do that I can still unabashedly uh, root for. Uh, I have to apologize, but I was really happy after uh, after that particular uh, <laughs> that particular Super Bowl. It's a great game, though. Great game. Yeah, you know, that's fine. You can you can enjoy my pain. That's okay. yeah. I, I I hear you, but it's funny. You know, Belichick for me, and and I and I know this only because I've had this conversation with you in the past and asked you about him. Is does he have a little Greg Popovich in him that he now has kind of taken the curmudgeon press conference to a new level because that is the expectation rather than reveal the fun side of his personality. Oh, oh, certainly. I, I think we've seen a little bit more of that. You know, he was one of the panelists when they did the top 100 players ever on the NFL Network, and he was certainly showing some of his fun side. This year, he actually did a commercial showing a little bit of humor. So it's starting to come out a little bit. But, yeah, I think he purposely plays up that, uh, you know, that role for sideline reporters and press conferences just as Pop does in basketball just to not reveal any information to kind of, you know, shorten that process of dealing with the media. In your NFL career, and maybe even your collegiate career, what are you most proud of? That is a fantastic question. Um, I am most proud of, on a personal level, the way that I played the game. Um, Again, I talked earlier about learning how to, you know, overwhelm somebody with how hard I played. Um, I had a little bit of that from my high school coach, um, and obviously I was surrounded by good players with the Colorado Buffaloes, and we certainly played hard. Um, I honed that later in the NFL, but the way I, the, how hard I was going to play, and I was willing to lay it on the line. I always saw that as a respect level for the game itself. How can I show this game that I know I can't show the game anything, but how can I show the game that type of respect by going out and playing as hard as I possibly can. Um, so that's what would be the team, I'm sorry, the personal part. And on the team side, um, recognizing that I was a part of a team and, you know, to steal that Belichick phrase to do your job at some point along the way, whether it was Pop Warner, the NFL or anywhere in between, I was asked to do some things that 
you know, weren't my favorite thing, but I always did them because I saw that the team came first. Um, we were all in this together. So respecting the game by how hard I played, but also respecting the game by recognizing it's not about me. It's about the we and how we can go out there and achieve something special. Yeah, that's well put as well. Um, you get this next question quite a bit because, you know, it's one thing. I'm sitting here in my office uh, doing this interview with you, and I have my old English sheepdog um, nestled uh, right at my side. Uh, it, you know, dogs, cats, those are normal pets. But you, you know, I, I don't know why. I'm going to find out with this question. You like exotic pets and made it made a, a fabulous business out of it were you as a kid always into snakes and lizards and that sort of thing oh absolutely you know i grew up on the foothills in southern california so frogs and garter snakes and king snakes and fence lizards and all that stuff was in my backyard as as a kid so i certainly you know caught them and played with them and you know kept them for a few days in a you know in a cage in the garage and let them go but my mother wouldn't let me have any, you know, permanent pets, reptile pets a, a, as a kid. And I suppose the fascination came from, you know, that close proximity, having them in my backyard. But also there was a great show, and this will date us as well, uh, Marlon Perkins' uh, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. Exactly. Great show. So, yeah. I mean, that was a crocodile hunter before there was a crocodile hunter. So I watched that show. I mean, that was must-see TV for a six- or seven-year-old chat. And, you know, hey, you know, and when this lion was trying to get away from us, you know, it jumped 20 feet. I would get a tape measure out and measure 20 feet in the house and, you know, ooh and ah. And, Mom, they caught a snake that was 16 feet. Can you believe that? So it was just a pure level of, of fascination for me. So once I got to the University of Colorado, I was no longer in my mother's house. Uh, someone in the dorms had a snake for sale. I got that one snake. I met somebody at a local pet store there in Boulder who ended up being a, a lifelong friend, Cameron to peddling of Bushmaster Reptiles. And he was buying, selling, and breeding reptiles as a business back when I was a freshman in college in 1988. He invited me to his house, took me in his basement, and had all these snakes everywhere. And, you know, I, I was just blown away. And uh, I was in hook, line, and sinker to the whole hobby, uh, kept and bred reptiles throughout college. And once I got into the NFL, had some money in my pocket, built a business. Uh, once I retired from the NFL, I really devoted to that business full time, uh, turned pro exotics reptiles into one of the largest breeders of reptiles on the planet, produced th uh, thousands of baby reptiles every single year. Unfortunately, uh, late 2011, we had a fire at the facility and lost most of the reptiles in that fire. And I've since transitioned in the animal business. Uh, I do business uh, as ship your reptiles right now, where I help people who breed reptiles or buy or sell them, send them to their eventual customers. So I do business as ship your reptiles, ship your aquatics for folks who are into corals and aquatic plants and fishes and things like that. I also have ship your invertebrates for people who do spiders and scorpions and centipedes. And coming soon here in 2021 will be ship your flora for folks who sell different types of plants, fruiting plants, house plants, things like that. So 
uh, I've managed to kind of use that initial reptile business experience as a springboard into this business, but I'm still involved in that animal space. Yeah, you, you have a creative brain and, and uh, it, it is always going. I have to ask you because you are, uh, I'm sorry to characterize, you, you're one of the strange birds that that actually like those things. Unlike most people, get those snakes away from me, the lizards, keep keep my distance. Um, is there, Has there been a snake or a reptile that actually intimidated you when you were in its presence? Well, uh, my friendship with Cameron to Pedlin, uh has taken us, uh, in some cases, around the world uh, doing some reptile adventures. I've been to Costa Rica. I've been in the jungles of, of, uh, of Costa Rica and Indonesia and Thailand. Um, we've also traveled to Texas and California in the deserts looking for animals. So I've been all over the globe with Cameron looking for animals, and Cameron established a farm in Jakarta, Indonesia. So when animals are caught in all the outer Indonesian islands, they come into this farm where they're processed and documented and all the government permits are put into place before the animals are shipped out. Um, well, at this farm, they have some really large reticulated pythons. Reticulated pythons are the longest species of python on the planet. So to be in a walk-in enclosure with a snake that is 22 or 23 feet, and its head is probably 18 to 24 inches long, that is pretty intimidating. That is pretty scary. Um, and, you know, I'm a reptile guy, and I love reptiles, but I can recognize that that snake doesn't fear me. That snake sees me as prey. And, it's you know, there's very few times in my life where I've been afraid that I'm going to be eaten um, but that, that was certainly one of those times. <laughs> that that is so crazy to me because I've actually seen some of the video chats. So you've gone have you, like on those anaconda deals where you're you're in the middle. It's the middle of the night. And you're trying to find anacondas and that kind of thing. Yes. So we have. Uh, well, I'll give you one more story. Uh, we got to the island of Halamahera. Uh, one of the first things you do when you get to one of these islands is you meet with the guy who sells the reptile skins because he knows where all the reptiles are on the island. We went and visited him, and he had some reticulated python skins, but he also had some skins of a python that we weren't familiar with. So one night we decided we're going to go to this cave where he says he sees some of these pythons and go try to collect one. Well, um, as we're walking, we come across a river, and it's at night, and this island has crocodiles on it. And we've seen some of these skins at the skin trader that are 20 plus feet. And I'm, I've got a chicken in my hands because we're going to use a chicken for bait. So I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. We're at night. We're going to cross a river of unknown size, of unknown depth. Earlier today, we saw crocodiles. We saw 20 foot long snake skins at the skin trader. I'm not doing it, man. <laughs> There's no way you're going to take me across this river tonight. Why don't we come back tomorrow in the daytime and do this so we can have a better sense of what's trying to eat us out here? So we came back in the daytime, wiser heads prevailed. Uh, yes, and we did not cross the crocodile-infested river at night. You, you know what? You, you lived in a world of the ultimate tough guy for, you know, 15 years in the NFL, four plus five years really in college. 
I guarantee you, you couldn't find three guys to go with you of all the guys you played with and against over basically 20 years. Well, remember my Seattle Seahawks where I played for eight years. We were part of the old AFC West before the Seahawks moved to the NFC West. Yep. So every year we played the Denver Broncos. So I would uh, get a uh, a big van. I would have my staff run a van, and I would take – uh, you know, six or eight teammates from the hotel to my reptile facility and show them what I was doing. And it would always be, you know, uh, a hysterical situation because the little <laughs> small guy who returns punts, no, he's never afraid. The giant offensive tackle or the nose guard who's 350 pounds, oh, yeah, he won't even go into the room. So, yeah, I've had lots of laughs and my teammates and their incredible sense of fear of the, even entering into a room with reptiles in it. Chad, I'm telling you, man, I'm, listen, you know me, I'm nowhere close to the size, I'm, I'm close to the, the punt return size guy. I'll go in the room as long as it's in a cage, but if you tell me, like, hey, the python, they're just crawling around, he'll be in the far corner, but he's not in a, in a, in a cage, I ain't going in that room. I'm out. That, but I think I'm like most uh, sane people. Hey, yeah. I'm not alone. Yeah. L- listen, real quick, uh, before you depart, because you're doing so much and so much great work in, in broadcasting and, and also on the talk side, how much enjoyment do you get from that? And did you imagine yourself getting into that part of uh, the business post-football life? Uh, I guess to answer the last question first, absolutely not. As a kid... I was incredibly shy. I, I had a stutter that I had to work through as a kid. So having someone to pay me, actually pay me to hear me talk about football into a microphone or into a camera, that was never even on my, my radar. But as, you know, life unfolds, weird things happen. I had that fire at my reptile facility, and a friend of mine, Alfred Williams, asked me to fill in on his radio show for a couple of days. I think in some ways to pick up my spirits because he knew what a crushing loss it was for all my reptiles. Um, and I thought after doing three days of that, you know what? This is a challenge that I, I want to take on. No matter what I do in life, communication is going to be an important part of that, whether it's the business things that I do, whether I get into coaching, or just Talking to my kids, wanting to be a better parent, wanting to be a better spouse, the ability for me to communicate is going to be critical. So when I started the whole broadcasting thing, it wasn't with the goal of being on Monday Night Football. It was just the goal of some self-improvement. How do I work on chat? How do I get better at communicating? And then along the way, some people, I guess, liked what I did. I've been given some opportunities. So I've you know, called college games on ESPN. And I do a lot of work here in Denver locally uh, on radio and television for the Denver Broncos, or we're talking about the Denver Broncos. And then now this year I've been calling games with Compass Media, which is a nationwide radio outfit. Um, each week our game is picked up somewhere between 100 and 400 different stations around the country, and I do college games and NFL games for them. Um, as we just talked about earlier on the, on the call, I did Philadelphia Green Bay last week. This week, I've got Wisconsin Badgers at the Iowa Hawkeyes. Um, so it, it changes from week to week, but it keeps me connected to the game, keeps me close to the game. 
And then I get to share this passion about football that I've had my whole life with people and hopefully along the way teach them something they didn't know when they get a chance to listen to me talk about the game. Well, you're doing, and I'm not just saying this, uh, I've always been a big fan. I've always enjoyed on the occasion that uh, when I was still uh, in on the radio side, uh, when we got to work together, uh, you, you've always been a fascinating guy. You're, you're a renaissance uh, man, and and I'm glad uh, I'm glad you called Colorado home. We get to uh, we get to hear you uh, not only locally but certainly now uh, uh, far more nationally, whether it be on the television side or the radio side. So, uh, Chad, thanks, man. Thanks for for jumping on. I appreciate it. I could talk to you for uh, for hours about a number of topics. Well, you know, we'll have to get me on for, for part two, Drew, but certainly appreciate uh, being on the podcast with you, man. Thanks for including me. There's no question. Chad Brown is a fascinating guy, and I've had a number of conversations with him about football, and I've had probably just as many about his love of reptiles because there are very few people like Chad, and I'm sure more people like me, and can I say you, that get freaked out by snakes. But there's also something about them because when I go to the zoo um, or I remember I was with a buddy in Thailand and we would go to every snake show we could because there's something about them that they freak you out, but you also, you want to, you know, check them out. I'd never want to hold them. I've, I've held a snake a couple of times. It just makes me squeamish. But Chad's one of these guys. I mean, you heard him, man. He goes he goes all over the world uh, looking for, as he calls them, animals. But, you know, they're reptiles and snakes and big snakes. How about that story? He was in the room with a 22, 23-foot python. No thank you. Quick story before we depart on snakes. And I have to tell Chad this sometimes. So I was with a buddy, and we were in Thailand. We were in Bangkok. And we went to a snake show. And... It, it was kind of a, a small little semicircle area where there were basically risers. You could sit in the front row, like the second row, or the top row, which was like the third row. And right in front of you was this guy, and he had a bag, and there, and he would take snakes out, and he and he was mic'd up, and he would say, "This is a such and such snake," and he would, you know, let it crawl around, and he'd tell you all about it, and. And sometimes a snake would start crawling from the stage a little close to that front row. I immediately, I was in the front row. I went back to the third row. I said, there's no way I'm going to be that close. And he's going through all these different snakes. And and, and there were, you know, some that were poisonous. And, you know, he would, I guess, be more careful with them. It was, it was kind of the craziest thing ever. Not a lot of rules over there. And then he takes out this snake. He calls it the jumping snake. And he's telling, and it's a big, you know, it's probably like eight feet, nine feet long. He takes it out and he's talking about it. And then he grabs it and he throws it in the first row of people. Well, everybody jumped. Fortunately, I was already in the third row. I went over the back and he starts laughing. He said, I said it is a jumping snake. I did not say it was a poisonous snake. Well, I mean, somebody could have had a heart attack. I'll never, ever forget that. It's said it's a jumping snake, not a poisonous snake. But that's my snake story. Um, 
I'll leave the snake stuff to Chad Brown. Thanks for uh, for coming on uh, again with us. Uh, Chad was wonderful, and it was good to reminisce about some of the great times at the University of Colorado, and uh, things are looking up at CU right now. That'll do it for show number 74. We appreciate you tuning in uh, every week. Tell your friends about uh, our podcast. Have them download it. Uh, we're on Facebook. You know we're on Twitter. Um, and... Uh, There's a lot of different ways you can download it. So, again, appreciate it. Have a wonderful week. It's the holidays approach. We'll talk to you again next week. That'll do it for this edition of the Drew Goodman Podcast.